it would not have been easy in the first century to be a Christian. First century Roman Empire would not have been easy to be a Christian. Um, Especially the ones to whom Hebrews was written. Uh, The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians in the Roman Empire. So they were catching it from two different angles. They were catching it from all sides, you could say. Um, On one level, the Roman government was increasingly making it more and more difficult to claim the name of Christ, to commit oneself to Christianity. The the Roman government was making it, especially during the time of Nero and a few emperors after him as well, uh, making it very difficult to follow Jesus. You were in danger of persecution, you were in danger of imprisonment, you were in danger of, of a pretty gory execution, you were in danger from the Roman government, but you were also, though, if you were a Jewish Christian, if you had left the family religion and you had, and you had committed yourself to following Christ, if, if He was your only hope in life and death, if you had, if you had become convinced that the Old Testament, that the, that the, uh, that the laws and the rituals and the priests and the temples and the, and the whole religion that was given to Moses, if you, if you had become convinced that all of that pointed to Jesus and all of that found its fulfillment in Jesus and He truly was the, the final word and where else would we go? You are the only ones with eternal life. If, if, if you had become convinced of that and you had left the family religion, uh, then you were in danger not only from the Roman government, but you're in danger from your family and your friends. You're... You're in danger of being mistreated, marginalized, mocked, maybe worse, from the people of your former life. So the, so the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's, he's writing to these people, and he's saying, don't leave Jesus. Don't turn your back on His Gospel. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't go back. And in today's verses, um, he's going to make one big point. There's one big point in these um, verses that Joel read for us. And so there's one big point of these verses, and there's one big point of the sermon as well. And it's this. Jesus is way better than the angels. Jesus is way better than the angels. I think that that makes us stop and sort of, uh, you know question, wonder, think, why, why, is, why is this such a big deal? Why is this one of his opening arguments? Why does he care so much? Why does the author of Hebrews want to, to drill it into the hearts and minds of these people he's writing to that Jesus is better than the angels? Why is he starting here? It's kind of an odd place to start. Well, what we have to understand is that um, a couple of things... One, angels were incredibly impressive. Um, And we think of angels far differently than they thought of angels. Um, But but also, the the Jewish religion, um, the the, the first century people, they understood that that the angels 
had been the ones that God had, had sent the word to Moses through. So when, when Moses, when, when God established like the, the priests and the, and, and the temple and, the, and the, the tabernacle and the rituals and the festivals and the, and the laws, when God gave that all to the Old Testament prophets, when, to Moses, and, and when God gave that all to them, he oftentimes gave it through the angels. And so, and so if you're sort of, of moving on from the Old Testament, if you're saying that, that actually Jesus has fulfilled all of that, it was good, it is good, and it, is, it, 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 was, it was good, and it was true, and it was from God, and it was vitally important, but it was all leading us to Jesus. If you had, if you had decided that, if you had decided on the Gospel, and you had decided on Jesus, and, and you had said, He is the fulfillment of all of that, well, then one of the sort of the marks against you or the, or the points against you would have been, well, you're moving on from the angels. You're, you're saying that um, you're, you're, you're saying that the angels are, are less impressive. You're saying that the angels are no big deal. Don't you remember? The angels brought the Old Testament. Why are we moving on from that so quickly? The author of Hebrews is, wants to say, oh no, the angels are a big deal. They're impressive. They're absolutely impressive. The Old Testament is a beautiful, beautiful book. The Old Testament was essential to get us to where we are now. The angels were essential to get us to where we are now. But where we are now is Jesus. He is the final word. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so what the author of Hebrews is going to do is very interesting. He's going to, he's going to prove that Jesus is way better than the angels. And, and, and in doing so, he's, 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 he's way better than the Old Testament. And, and the author of Hebrews is going to use the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is better than the Old Testament. He's going to, he's going to use the Old Testament to, to prove that, that Jesus is way better than the angels. And that all of that was simply leading up to, to him, to Jesus. And so, so the author here is going to make um, four, he's going to give us four reasons why Jesus is way better than the angels. We have four reasons from the Old Testament. He's basically just going to quote the Old Testament at us. We have four reasons from the Old Testament why Jesus is better than the angels. And each of these four reasons are shouting at us, don't leave Jesus don't turn your back on his gospel. Don't give up. Don't go back. Jesus is way better than the angels. Four reasons for this. Number one, first reason, because God called the Son of God the Son of God. Verses five and six. Point number one, because God called the Son of God the Son of God. 5 and 6 say, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. So this is the first reason why Jesus is way better than the angels, because God never gave them this kind of title, this kind of name, God never said about any of the angels, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
God's never said that about any angel. God the Father has called the Son of God the Son of God. Okay, so this is, this is odd, right? This is, um, this is interesting to us. We have to stop and we have to think um, today. Now, I'm just assuming that because you guys are in church on Labor Day, that you're the ones who really care, all right? So you're going to be with... <laughs> just kidding, for all those who listen to this later, um, who are right now, I don't know, doing what the pagans do. Anyhow, um, the nice thing about that is no one's going to hear your laughing. They're just going to hear my nasty remark. They're going to think that you sort of gave me a dirty look when I said that. And so this is, it's great. So the, 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 the recording won't pick up your, your um, really kind of snarky laughter. Um, anyhow, so here we are. So we have to think about this. We're ready to think, right, this morning. We're ready to think. We're, we know we're going through Hebrews, so we know we have to think. But we have to ask ourselves, why would... God the Father have to call the Son of God the Son of God. What are we doing here? What's going on here? Because in one level in these verses, we see very clearly that the Son of God has always been the Son of God. He is and always will be and always has been the Son of God. He is God himself. These verses are going to make that very clear. So why was there this day when the Father said to him, You are my son, my son Pete? sitting right there, behaving himself, listening intently to my every word. If I brought him up here, and I said to everybody here, I said, from this day forward, Peter is my son. That would be weird. Because you guys would be like, actually, maybe, but also for the last nine years, uh, he's been your son. I mean, you're just, that's, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Well, we have to understand what God the Father... God the Father is giving His eternal Son a very um, special title. Uh, these, these verses are coming from Psalm 2, and they're coming from 2 Samuel 7, where God um, calls the Son, the Son. He's, he's, he's telling everyone that Jesus is the Son. And, and, he, and in, in the Old Testament, the Son of God was the Messiah. It was, the, it was the king that was promised to David. It was the king in Psalm 2 that would sit on his throne and, 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 and um, all of his enemies would be dashed before him and of his kingdom there would be no end in 2 Samuel 7. It's this king that the, uh, the, the Old Testament believers were longing for. It was this king that was going to come from the line of David and finally be the king who would rule and reign forever. The, the answer to God's promises. That's, that, so when he uses this very special title, the Son, that's what he's referring to. So in one way, yes, the, Jesus was always the Son of God. But now there is this special moment in time where God the Father tells everyone, this is the Son. This is the Messiah. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what he's driving at when he says, this is the firstborn. He brings the firstborn into the world. The Son of God being God the Father's firstborn doesn't mean that, that, that the Son of God ever started. He never began. He, he always has existed. What does the firstborn mean? It, 
It, it means like from Psalm 89, where God says about the Messiah, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's a, it's a title. No one's given birth to him. It's a title. He's calling him the firstborn. It's a rank. It's a, it's, it's a privilege. It's an exalted name. It's not talking about Jesus' nature. It's talking about a title that, the, that God the Father has given him. If my son Pete and I were first century Romans, um, I, of course, would be rich. Um, and so we, th- there would be one way in which, yes, um, my son Peter is my, is my biological son. There's no DNA testing back then, but if, 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 if my wife and I had a son... Um, and he was my blood son, he's my DNA son, he's my biological son. But then also, though, in, in first century Roman culture, um, there would be a way in which he wasn't my legal son yet. He wasn't my official son yet. He had no claim to my inheritance yet. He didn't have any claim to my wealth, any claim to my family business, until there was this time in his life where I, where, where, where I found him worthy where I approved of him. And so then there would be this, this special ceremony where I would announce to everyone, this is my son. And what, what I mean by that is, when I die, he gets the business. When I die, he gets the land. When I die, he gets the inheritance. He gets the family wealth. He is my firstborn son. There was, there was many times in the first century when that firstborn son, the father took four looks at him and was like, nah, I don't think so. I'm waiting for another one. That happened often. After, actually, there were, there were times when, when a, Roman, um, a, a Roman man who um, just didn't feel great about any of his actual biological sons, he would adopt someone and give them the family name, give them the family business. So there is a way in which, yes, absolutely, God the Son has always been God the Son. But then there's this moment where God the Father says about God the Son, um, this, is my, this is my son. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Romans 1 um, in verse 3 and 4 says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God. That's what we're talking about here. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So there are a few times when God the Father says, you are my beloved Son. He announces that from heaven during the life of Jesus. I, I think what Hebrews is talking about here, the, the very specific time, is, the, is sort of the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's after He has made purification for sins, He sits down at the right of the hand of the Father and, and he's, he's resurrected, he's exalted. The, the Father says, you are my son. You are the son. We don't worship angels. This is why the, the angels are worshiping him. In verse 6, he is the firstborn. He is the highest of the kings of the earth. We don't worship angels. We don't trust in angels because angels themselves are worshiping Jesus. Because the Father has called him the firstborn. He's called him the Son. To turn away from the one who God has called the King of Kings would be incredibly foolish. Don't do it. God has called the Son of God the Son of God. So that's our first reason why Jesus is way better than the angels. Second reason, because 
the angels are simply the servants of the Son of God. Verses 7 and 8, because the angels are simply the servants of the Son of God. See, Mark, you're not the only one who can do a bunch of S's. I got a bunch of S's in that, too. It's alliteration. It's really good. The angels are simply the servants of the Son of God. Verses 7 and 8 says, Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. I, this is fascinating that, that, the, that, that the, the word of God is being applied to Jesus. Your throne, O God. God the Father is saying to God the Son, O God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So, on, on, uh, so the, the, the angels are simply the servants of the Son of God. Now, again, we've lost track of this pretty much. Like, by and large, the angels to us are, um, we don't, I mean, we believe in them, but they're not really a part of, like, our history. And they're not really a part of, they, they almost don't even seem, uh, they seem more legendary than anything else. We don't think about them much, and when we do think about them, we probably think in silly ways. Um, it, because we, we watch movies like It's a Wonderful Life. You ever watched It's a Wonderful Life? And the angel in there is, is Clarence, and he's kind of this bumbling, he's a, he's a well-meaning Thing, but he's, he's a bumbling doofus and he hasn't earned his wings yet because he hasn't helped enough people or something. Um, and so he's, like, we think of angels in this weird, like, folksy kind of way. Or we think of them as, like, those, those babies in nightgowns with blonde hair and wings and really big eyes, you know? And, like, it's, we, we don't think of angels correctly. But in, in, in the Bible, the angels are pretty impressive. They routinely do things like uh, enter into locked prisons and release apostles. They also do very destructive things. In Genesis, God sends the angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In 2 Kings, just one angel destroys 185,000 Assyrians. So when, so when the, the, the first century believers thought of angels, they thought of the one that could destroy almost 200,000 bad guys. They, 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 were, they, were, they were fearful creatures. They were impressive creatures. This is why anytime they show up, people freak out. They, the angel, first thing angel has to say to anybody, don't be afraid. Stop. Just, okay, stay here. Stop. stop. Calm down. I'm not here to destroy you. Because they look like they've come to destroy someone. They're impressive. But here's what the author of Hebrews says. The author of Hebrews says, they are simply the servants of God. The author of Hebrews says, I know why you might be tempted to over-revere them, to even worship them. I know why you'd be tempted to be too impressed with them. Please remember, they are simply the servants of God. Make no mistake, the Son is God. He reigns forever and ever he does what is righteous and just, and the angels are simply his servants. When, when, the, when the word says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, 
we, we see sort of the way here that the Bible talks about wind and horrific weather. All kinds of natural phenomena. We have a hard time getting our minds around this, but it is very important for us to understand that, that no matter how horrifying or devastating or, or awe-inspiring the weather is, and we've seen some stuff, right? We've seen some stuff on the news. We've seen, we've seen just like destruction. The hands of natural elements. What the Bible teaches us is that they, that's just God's ministers. That's just the servants of God. The weather just accomplishes the purposes of God. The same is true for incredibly powerful angels. They do nothing but accomplish the purposes of God. So we don't worship angels. We worship the one they worship. We worship the one they serve. We worship Jesus. So that's our second reason why Jesus is way better than the angels. Because the angels are simply the servants of the Son of God. Number three, third reason, because the Son of God remains. Because the Son of God remains. Verses 10 through 13 says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Son of God is permanent. He remains. He created the foundation of the earth in the beginning. He even created the angels. He has existed forever. And He will remain. Even after creation wears out like a garment. Like an old t-shirt. I've, I've mentioned before that I, I like to wear the clothes that I like to wear. I'm not a super fashionable person. I mostly care about comfort. Um, the other day, Haddon pulled out um, of her um, dresser drawers, she pulled out, she's my four-year-old daughter, and she pulled out um, red pants and a pink shirt. And I don't know much, but I know I've been trained um, by people who are smart that you shouldn't wear red and pink. Like, don't, don't let the girls wear red and pink. Tell them don't do that. And so I, I mentioned this to her. We had a brief discussion um, uh, I said, you, you, you know, red and pink, you're going to wear red and pink, Haddon? Red and pink don't match. You're going to wear red and pink? And she says, what? They're comfortable. I was like, all right, go ahead. I'm with you. I was just like, that's, I, I'm with you. Yep, yep. Uh, it's a girl after my own heart. You go wear your red and your pink, and then we'll see if your mother sees it or if she's too busy today to notice your clothing and, uh, or to care. And so just... Good luck. So she trotted out there, and I think it was fine. I think, I think it was fine. I think she survived the whole day in red and pink. I have a few t-shirts that if it was up to me, I would wear them until they disintegrate uh, because they're just my favorite t-shirts. I I, they're comfortable. I like them. I, sometimes I'm wearing one of my favorite t-shirts, and my wife says to me, I thought you said you were going to not wear that anymore. And I... 
think in my head, I, I don't have the courage to say this out loud, but I think in my head, I say, no, no, you said I wasn't going to wear it anymore. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm going to wear it for another 10 years or so and then reevaluate. Because um, I like my comfortable clothes. Our, our clothes wear out. And she doesn't want me to wear them because they're, they're wearing out before our very eyes. They look, they look raggedy. When, I, I, think, I think she doesn't want me to wear them out in public because I look unloved, right? I look like there's no one in my life who can shop and also cares for me. Um, and so she just, don't, don't. That's because our clothes, our clothes wear out. So we roll them up and toss them away. The created world is like that. The stuff that you love so much is going to be destroyed. Some of it will be destroyed slowly. It will disintegrate, right? Over time, it'll get lost to just life and to to disintegration. It'll get lost to the ground. Some of it is going to be destroyed dramatically when Jesus returns. But no matter what, Jesus himself will remain. His enemies will come and go, but one day they will all be under his feet because he does not come and go. He remains. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we're going to talk about this next week in depth. So so today we're just kind of talking about the theology of it, and next week we're going to talk about the, so what does this mean for my every single day existence? But I want to just say right now, by way of application, if you want joy that lasts, if you want to make your time on earth count in ways that will outlive earth itself, if you want to commit yourself to someone that will last, then you turn to Jesus, and you stick with Jesus, and you work for Jesus, and you love Jesus, and you trust in Jesus, and you find your deepest joy in Jesus. And you worship Jesus, because He remains. That's the third reason why Jesus is way better than the angels. And then number four, last reason, because the Son of God is kind. He is kind. There are several surprising verses as I read through Hebrews 1, 5-14 several times this week. Read through it many times. I was, I, there, was, there was interesting little surprises all over this passage. This verse right here is the most surprising in my opinion. It says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So we have, to, <laughs> we have to ask ourselves a question. If the Son of God created the world, if, if, if the, the foundation of the earth, if the, the heavens were formed by his word, if, if the, 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 the heavens and the earth are being upheld 
by his word. And if at the time appointed, he is going to roll the thing up like a garment. If he is the king of heaven and earth, why in the world would he subject himself to this? Did you read that verse? It says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God has anointed you. So Jesus does this fascinating thing where he, even though he is the creator, the eternal creator of, of, all, of all things, and even though by his very nature he deserves all worship and all praise, what does the Son of God do? He, he humbles himself to accept this, this earthly life where he would be called upon to prove his righteousness. To prove it. How ridiculous is this? That the, that the Son of God, the eternal creator Son of God, who upholds all things by the word of his power and is going to outlast all things easily, how, how ridiculous is it that he has to prove anything? Why would he accept this, this earthly life where he would be called upon to prove that he alone could do what none of the rest of us could do? That, that he alone was good? And that he always loved righteousness and he always hated evil. Why? <laughs> Why would someone in their very nature, who is, who is in their very nature perfect and all-powerful and eternal and completely happy, Why would he subject himself to this? Why would he humble himself down into a situation where he had to earn the right to be the king of the world he created? Because among all of his other surprises, Hebrews tells us that God the Father, God the Father officially announced the kingship of Jesus Christ because he had earned it. Because he had proven that he loved righteousness and hated evil. Why does Jesus do this? There's a hint here. There's a hint. We're going to see it. It's full blast in a couple of sermons. All right? But we're going to see a, a quick hint here at the end of verse 9. You, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Three of my favorite words beyond your companions. Who are Jesus' companions? It's, it's all those he has saved. It's all those who have, by the grace of God, uh, believed that the Son of God has indeed proved his great righteousness. The, it's, it's all those who, by the grace of God, truly believe that Jesus is their only hope in life and death. And they're going to throw their lot in with Him, come what may. They are going to trust Him. This is a, a work that God the Father has done in their heart. They are now in Christ. Those are Jesus' companions. 
why did Jesus why did Jesus subject himself to an earthly life where he would have to prove his righteousness? He did this for his companions. He did this for me and you. He did this so that he would have a ton of gladness and a ton of joy and he would share it with his companions. And not only does he share his joy with us, not only, not only do we get, do we get um, the, 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 the joy that Jesus could very well have kept for himself, but instead he shares it with his companions. Not only is there joy, but there is inheritance. Our final verse, Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, the author of Hebrews says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So our verses are clear. The, the angels serve the Son of God. And what does the Son of God have them doing? He has them serving for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So, so salvation is, is not just something that we have right now. It's something that we're going to inherit. We're going to inherit life eternal in the presence of God Himself. We're going to inherit what, what Jesus alone is worthy of. The New Testament has told us, even if we have a hard time believing it, the New Testament has told us that we are joint heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. The, The eternal Son of God who needed nothing, needed no one, He was fine. He's good. He had always existed. He had never needed anyone's help to exist. He never needed anyone's help to begin. He always existed, and he's always going to exist. He created the foundation of the world. He's going to roll it up like an old t-shirt when he's ready to. In the meantime, he's upholding it with the word of his power. That same Son of God humbled himself to to be subjected to this earthly life where he would have to prove that he loved righteousness and hated evil. And and even though proving that he loved righteousness and hated evil means, means obeying his Father all the way to the cross, he did this. Because he is kind. Just in his very nature, he deserves eternal joy and eternal blessing. But he did this so that he could share it with you. Jesus is way better than the angels. Pray together. Jesus, we thank you. You are strong and kind. This sermon nowhere near (laughs) does it justice. The, The 
magnitude of what is stated in Hebrews 1, 5-14. I take comfort in knowing there's not a preacher on the planet that could do it justice. And I take comfort in knowing that your Holy Spirit takes our our feeble speaking ability and our feeble listening ability and applies your word, as Joel prayed earlier, applies your word to our hearts and to our lives. We are dependent upon that this morning. In our frailty, we are not anywhere near as impressed with you as we should be. We pray that by your spirit, you will impress us. Help us to never turn back. And if there's anyone here who's never started, who's never believed the gospel, pray that they would, by your grace, do that today. We thank you. In your name, we pray all this. Amen.